Good morning, everybody. During the, the month of May, we have been discovering some of the things that God wants to say, that he wants to speak to us through the stories of women in the Bible, some resilient women. These are women in Scripture who were born on the margins of society. Uh, these are outcasts. They were discarded. Uh, these are overlooked by other people. But these stories, I got to tell you, their, their courage, their tenacity, they're praised by the Scripture writers as being something that should inform us that should inspire us. And so today we're talking about a woman named Tamar. Um, we're back in the book of Genesis. If you have your Bibles, you can open them up to there. It's the first book of the Bible. And uh, we'll be in Genesis chapter 38. Now, I have to say this, a little disclaimer. Just like last week, um, there are some elements of this story that are not exactly uh, super kid-friendly. Um, remember, the Bible is not uh, made entirely just to be flanagraphed, like in kids' world, uh, that this is not the message they're going to be getting this morning. And so this is a great opportunity uh, for your kids to be back in kids' world today. Um, the Bible is written for adults. You know, it's, it's written by, you know, through the writers are adults, for adults, and it'll oftentimes it peels back the curtain onto some adult-level wickedness. And so I encourage you to make use of kids' world today. Um, for the rest of us, I will try to be as discreet uh, with the text as possible. But there are some truly uh, wicked things that people do to each other in this story. And when I say that, I'm not referring, by the way, I'm not actually thinking of Tamar herself. Um, I'm thinking about the men surrounding her in this story. The, there are some guys who are playing some wicked games in this story because here's what's interesting. If you know anything about, about what's coming up here with her story, over the centuries, oftentimes the church has sort of reflexively painted Tamar as a sort of seductive temptress. Um, what we find, though, in the text itself is that the Bible holds Tamar up to be a hero. She's a hero. And we see her celebrated throughout the rest of Scripture. Uh, she's never, never not once interpreted within the Bible as someone who is wicked. And, and believe me, the Scriptures are quick to uh, label people as wicked if they are, if, if they deserve it. And so there's, as we're going to see in a couple of characters in this story, but Tamar only spoken with blessing. Uh, in fact, several places throughout the Bible later, she's referred back to positively. Um, at the wedding celebration of Ruth and Boaz, if you remember them, uh, that when they are getting married, the blessing that's pronounced to them is that Ruth might have the blessing of Tamar. Later, King David has a beautiful daughter, and he names her after Tamar. He names her Tamar. And then most beautifully, when we, in the New Testament, when we get to Matthew's genealogy of Jesus, Tamar is one of the few females uh, that are honored in that, that genealogy. And Tamar in this story plays a very interesting role. It's, it's a word that we've referred to before. She plays the role of the Azer. The Azer. It's a Hebrew word. We've unpacked this term before it means a strong helper. It can mean a warrior. It can mean a rescuer. Most often it refers to God. 21 times this Hebrew word azer is uh, used in, in the Bible. And 19 of those times it's referring to God. 
it's talking about God as a helper to his people, such as in the Psalms where he says, oh God, you are my help, you are my shield. Uh, sometimes it's called, it's translated as my strength. One time it's even translated as the crown on my head. And, and so the one in power, this is the one who comes along, the knight in shining armor, so to speak, the one who is who's someone else. When someone's beyond hope, you know, and, and help me, Obi-Wan, you're my only hope, this is the one who comes in and rescues uh, the, the person. That's the Azer. And as we've learned in uh, this uh, other series, the one instance in the Bible where this word is used in Scripture for someone other than God is in Genesis chapter 2, in the very beginning of it all. When God creates Eve, He creates Eve, the woman, and He pronounces her as Adam's azer, the strong helper, the rescuer, the, who will come along and deliver the other. That's the idea behind the azer, the rescuer who acts on behalf of God. And of course, what's interesting is uh, very often we use the word helper to mean something kind of different than that, right? We use the word helper to mean the inferior if you think, oh, that's, that's the helper, He's, that's the inferior, that's the, the caddy to the golfer, right? Robin to Batman, or assistant to the general manager, not the general manager itself, right? Uh, the helper is like the one who, who well, that's the one who, who's there to assist and help the man on the mission, right? Because, because men are called to accomplish something, uh, women are called to help men accomplish something. That's sort of the idea that we get uh, in, in culture. Um, but what Scripture actually says is very different. And so how we see that played out in this story and in many of the stories of the Bible is fascinating, and it's frustrating. It is because what we find over and over and over in the Scriptures is that women, when just given the opportunity, when just given a little bit of space, they can be counted on to step up into that Azer role in a very powerful and humbling way. Uh, not as the ruler of men and not as his servant either, but as a partner who is equal to any task. And so that we, this story is definitely no different. Um, so we're going to check out our Bibles here. If you've got them open to uh, Genesis chapter 38. The first thing we want to mention before we jump into our story is there's another main character in this story. Uh, you might have heard of his name by the name of Judah, Judah. And Judah is eventually going to go through a very huge transformation. And we have to ask the question, what was the event in Judah's life? What, did, what is it that God used to bring about this radical heart transformation in Judah? So let me give you a little bit of background just in this story. This story is actually inserted right in the middle of the famous story of Joseph. Everybody remember the story of Joseph and the Technicolor dream coat and gets sold to Egypt, that guy. This story is like right in the middle. It like takes a pause and then boop, it goes into this story uh, that we're going to look at today. But in chapter 37, Judah is one of the brothers of Joseph, and he's one of the older brothers, and he wants to sell his brother Joseph into slavery. So if you remember the story of Joseph, um, he has all the dreams. He's kind of an annoying little kid, and all of his brothers sort of start to hate him because he's always like, hey, God gave me a dream that I'm going to like be your boss or something. And, uh, and they finally get fed up with him, and some of them want to kill him. And Judah says, well, I know, let's sell him into slavery, which really is a kind of social death. And so... Um, 
because it's, it's cutting him off from his family, his clan, his tribe, his people, his home. And he says, let's send him into slavery. Let's sell him to some pagans and we'll never have to see him again. And so we see Judah right off the, when we're first introduced to this man as uh, this frustrated individual. He's making wicked, self-centered decisions. He's turning his back on just any kind of normal responsibility one would have to their own family. That's just the kind of guy he is. Um, and we're going to see him act with the same character today in our story. But something happens. Something happens in this story because years later, when we're reintroduced to Judah, he, he's introduced in a part of Joseph's story uh, when another of his brothers is taken captive in Egypt. And Judah, among all of the brothers, is the one who says, uh, no, no, take me instead. Let, let my brother go free. Uh, and little does he know he's actually talking to his other brother, Joseph, at the time, if you remember that story. But we see Joseph, uh, Judah as this completely changed person. He's gone from this completely egocentric uh, betray, betrayer of his own family uh, to this self-sacrificing love of family. He says, I'll give you my life in his place. Just let him go. So what is this event that, that makes Judah do a complete 180 and, and turns him from this downward spiritual spiral he's in. Because the Judah we're going to see today is in a pretty dark place. He's in a pretty dark spiritual place. Most theologians agree it's the events that we're about to cover today through Tamar as his azer, as his rescuer that gets Judah back on track. So we're going to see how that happens. Now listen, I'm going to paraphrase a lot of this story for two reasons. One, it's a long thing, and so we'd be here forever if I read every little detail. The other one, the other reason is, guys, there's some things I just don't want to say out loud, right? <laughs> Folks, my mom goes to this church, and honestly, uh, if, if, we just, if I say some things, her and I both will just die of embarrassment. So, um, so here we go. Bear with us. The chapter begins in chapter 38, or the story in chapter 38, verse 1. And it starts off with Judah marrying a Canaanite woman. Now, remember, this happens exactly after he just sold his brother Joseph into slavery. So it cuts away to Judah. He goes and marries a Canaanite woman, which is a first sign. That's very important. The writer is letting us know there's something off about Judah. He's went off and married a Canaanite. That's like the pagan people. And so he's left his own clan. He's, he's moved to this pagan land. He's married a pagan woman. They have three sons. And he finds for his son, his first son, a wife named Tamar. And you'll notice in the story, the men, throughout this story, the men make all the decisions, right? This is a patriarchal culture. So the men make the decisions. The, the women are basically just kind of pawns in, in the plans, whatever plans the men make. Um, it says, but error, error, that's Judah's second mistake, naming him Ur, but his firstborn was wicked in the Lord's sight. So the Lord put him to death. Whoa. All right. So the text is not afraid to say when someone is wicked. He's called right out. He's, this guy is wicked. According to the writer, justice comes swiftly and the Lord smites the husband. Now, we don't really know what that means. We don't know if he dropped dead of a heart attack. We're not really sure. It doesn't say. Um, you know, it's attributed to the Lord's justice and judgment. The wages of sin is death, you know. So we, we, we've talked about it before, we understand there's a, the pre-Jewish understanding of God is a little cloudy, but, uh, but it says that he was wicked. Whatever has happened, keep in mind, Tamar has had to be married, apparently, to someone the Bible calls wicked for however long, whether it's weeks or months or years. 
But what was that like for her to be married to a wicked man and have no recourse? She has no no power, no voice. There's nothing she could do about it. So there's just like untold pain already just in that simple phrase. Verse 8, then Judah said to Onan, who's the second son. Onan's the second son. His big brother has just died. Onan's big brother died. So dad says, sleep with your brother's wife and fulfill your duty to her as a brother-in-law to raise up offspring for your brother. Well, that sounds a little weird, but this was a common practice back then. This is actually something called the law of leveret marriage. And this wasn't even uh, just limited to Israel. A lot of the countries in that ancient Near East would have this law of leveret marriage. And what it would say is if you had a guy who died and he didn't leave his wife with a son, then the next brother should take care of her and marry her, right? Because you remember back then, there's no prospects for a woman, right? To just be left alone as a widow with nothing. And so the next son's supposed to take, step up, take care of her, marry her, and give her uh, a child, Now, something else what that would mean was, in this case, uh, Judah had three sons. So you remember, so the inheritance was a big deal back then. So the inheritance would be split into three, and the first son would get a double portion. So that was a big deal. Well, if that son dies, well, now it's down to two, and it gets split in half. So this is a little better for the remaining brothers, right? And this guy would get the double portion. However, what the law of lever marriage says is, you marry the widow, and when she has a son, that son gets that original portion. So in a way, it's a very sacrificial step for that second son because he's now sort of giving away, giving away that extra portion that he would have gotten of the big inheritance and everything. And so that's what he's expected to do, though. That's Onan's um, duty there. Marry Tamar, give her a son, and the big cut of that inheritance goes back to her, her son. Everybody clear? All right. Verse 9, but Onan knew that the child would not be his, and so whenever he slept with his brother's wife, he made sure she didn't get pregnant, okay? I'm so glad mom's in the nursery today. She's taking care of the kids. Um, Mom, if you're listening to this by podcast, just don't, you don't even need to read the scripture, just follow me. Um, So basically, Onan comes along, he marries Tamar, but he's just using her. He's using her selfishly. It's just for his own pleasure here. He, he repeatedly is degrading her and making sure his house, his own children, are the one who are going to get all the inheritance. Now remember, in this culture, we talked about this last week, a woman's whole value is wrapped up in having children. I mean, that's, they thought that's why they were put on the earth to have children. So this is her value being taken away from her. She is treated as completely expendable here. And and now I wonder where Onan got this idea from, right? Being raised by such a fine, upstanding man like Judah, as we're going to see, like father, like son. In verse 10, it says, no, what he did was wicked in the Lord's sight. So the Lord put him to death also. Oh man, these guys are dropping like flies now, right? Uh, (laughs) So Tamar has had two husbands, both of them have died. There's one brother left who's now supposed to marry Tamar. So now it falls, the duty falls to the third brother. He's supposed to marry Tamar. But Judah, the dad, he gets other ideas. It says here, Judah then said to his daughter-in-law, Tamar, you go live as a widow in your father's household. He's not supposed to do this, but he has told her, you go back home. 
until my son, Sheila, mistake number three, for he said, until he grows up, because now it tells us what Judah's thoughts were, because he may die too, just like his brothers. So Judah's thinking, this woman must be cursed, right? She's like this black widow. He's somehow blaming her for to bring about the deaths of his sons, right? Because it can't be the fault of my two upstanding fine young sons. You know, it wasn't them. It must be her. So he says, I tell you what, you go back and live with your father and I'll let you know when my youngest son is old enough. As the text reads, he has no intention of, of making that happen. He just wants time. He wants to find the time to find a different wife for his boy. So Judah is playing in the times of the culture and in the context of the culture, he's playing a very wicked game here. This is not right. He's not treating her right. Tamar is sent back to live with her father, which is basically a death sentence, or you could say a life sentence for her, because now she has nothing. She has nothing. Um, she's in no man's land. She's living with her dad. She's no longer like a virgin maiden, you know, who's marriable. She's officially betrothed to this third son, but she's never going to receive him. <coughs> so, and so nobody else can come and ask her to marry them because in that culture, she's, she's sort of like called, she's been called for or something like that, you know. She's unmarried. She has no children, no prospects, no hopes, no dreams that any daughter might would have in that culture. And she's been made to feel by her late husband that she's worthwhile only for sex. That's it. You know, the only other people in that culture <clears throat> who had this kind of status would be prostitutes. That was the only other people who would be in that position. In that world, women were made to, to be dependent upon men, and prostitution was that horrible lot that awaited any woman who fell through the cracks. And so the message given to all women was very clear. You're, if you're not the property of one man, you're the property of all men. That is the that is the state that Tamar suddenly finds herself in. So in verse 12, we read, she realizes Judah's never going to give me a husband. Now she finds out that Judah's wife has died. And so he goes through the traditional period of mourning. And then after that, he has to go on some business. He's going to travel. And she finds out he's going to be traveling. So she says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to disguise myself by wearing a veil, and wearing a veil back then, she's going, I'm going to plant myself by the gates of the city and wear a veil. That is a, a clear sort of, that's the garb of a prostitute. She's going, I'm going to stand by the gates, wearing a veil, plant myself by the side of the road while he's walking past <clears throat> and see what happens. Which is fascinating because her whole plan <clears throat> is built around her prediction of Judah's character, isn't it? You got to wonder, like, how did Tamar know that Judah would find a random prostitute by the side of the road irresistible? <laughs> Apparently, there's some MO going on here, right? That's, that's sort of well known. This is some sort of behavior that would not be unusual for Judah. Sure enough, verse 16, Judah's walking by and he sees her and he doesn't recognize her, which just shows, her, shows you how little he's noticing anything about her as a person. He just sees a body. That's all that matters. So he goes up to her and he realizes he doesn't have any money with him because this is kind of a spur of the moment thing. So they negotiate. <clears throat> She's like, what do you give me? He says, well, 
I'll give you a goat. He's a real romantic. I'm going to give you a goat. Now, Tamar knows what kind of guy this is she's dealing with, so he has like no credibility at all. So she asks for some guarantee that he's going to pay up. So he gives her some of his personal items. It says he gives her his staff and his seal. This would be like the equivalent of leaving your driver's license and social security card with somebody because this would be very important to identify him. Like if he was going into business, if he was trading or something like that, he would show the staff and the seal and this sort of thing to prove who he was <coughs> if he was going into an agreement. So she's going to say, well, you let me hold on to those while you go get your goat later. So they sleep together. He's still clueless who she is never bothers to truly see his daughter-in-law right in front of him. And when Judah gets back home, it says he sends his friend back to town to deliver the goat and get back his personal items. So his friend starts walking around town going, anyone seen the prostitute? Has anyone seen the prostitute? (laughs) And finally, Judah says, you know what, let's stop looking for her. Because at some point, just being the guy who's looking for the prostitute really isn't what my reputation needs right now. And it is interesting. Like, it doesn't seem to be the shame of having been with a prostitute. It's, it's the shame of having been outsmarted by a prostitute. That's, that's what he doesn't want everybody realizing. So he's like, let her keep what she has or we'll become a laughingstock. After all, I did try to send her the young goat, but you didn't find her. So he goes back to his life. And about three months later, Judah was told, hey, your daughter-in-law Tamar is guilty of prostitution. And as a result, she is now pregnant. One other really interesting uh, cultural point here that I just discovered this week. By the law of that leveret marriage that we were talking about, brother after brother after brother, if all the brothers are unable to marry her and give her a child, do you know who the duty falls to? The father-in-law. It falls to Judah. It is his duty then to take her as a wife and give her a child. So Tamar is actually taking it on herself. Since they have all cheated her out of a marriage, she's taking it on herself to take the next step, to have a child by the father-in-law Judah. She's doing everything within her power within the confines of this incredibly restrictive culture. Do you see how she's just, she's like taking whatever opportunity there is, this patriarchal power structure to make things right. And at the same time, she's exposing the whole injustice of the whole structure itself. So, and it just, it fascinates me as I read commentary after commentary, religion wants to brand her as a sinner and a harlot when scripture identifies her as a heroine of the faith, as we're going to see. So Judah finds out Tamar is pregnant and guilty of prostitution. And instead of just dismissing the fact is, well, that's irrelevant. You know, thank God she's out of our life. You know, oh, we dodged a bullet on that one, whatever, you know, because why would he care? He's already sent her back home. No, no, no. Instead, she, he explodes into a frenzy of righteous indignation. How dare that woman that I have been preserving for my son squander the flower of her womanhood, you know, and so flippantly as a prostitute. (laughs) That's what he's doing, right? This is insulting. And he calls for her to be brought and executed. And not just executed in the way that most of the the codes back then said you would execute a a prostitute, which would be by stoning. 
That's not enough for him. He wants her to be burned alive. By the way, the only other time that a prostitute would ever be burned alive was if they were the daughter of the high priest. So look at what Judah is saying about himself, right? I'm like the priest here and this horrible woman. So Tamar is being dragged over to Judah's territory for her public execution. And in the process, she says, can you just tell Judah something before I'm burned alive? Um, since we're confessing, and I'm, make, I'm confessing to being pregnant, let's make this a public confession, shall we? Can you just tell him that the man I slept with is the man who owned these? And so someone takes these things over to Judah and says, you know, Lord Judah is further proof of her wickedness. These are the things that belong to the man who slept with her. And Judah's, ooh, <laughs> wah, wah, wah. he's busted. Now for Judah, not only is he busted, and he realizes this, but there sincerely does appear to be a turning point for him here. This is a moment, it would seem everything begins to shift inside him. Maybe it's just being faced with the hypocrisy of the whole situation, but the light gets switched on. His downward spiral is reversed because Tamar has stepped in and become his azer, his rescuer, his helper. And he says this in verse 26, she is more righteous than I. She is more righteous than I. Since I wouldn't give her to my son, Shelah. And he did not sleep with her again, which couldn't have really been that much of a drag to her. And Tamar becomes not just somebody who stands up for herself, she's, she's definitely doing that, but Scripture later reveals that she is fighting for the plan of God, for the will of God. When the men all around her had, had walked away from God's plan to bring about his people through the bloodline of Abraham, Tamar is actually the one who refused to let that destiny die, and she calls the men of this family back to God's plan. And she goes on to give birth to twins, which in the Bible is always a blessing. She gives birth to twins. One of those boys is named Perez, who is an ancestor of Boaz, who marries Ruth, who would become a descendant of King David, and is later listed in the lineage of Jesus Christ. Now, before I, before we finish up, I want to go back for a second and, uh, and take one more look at that initial reaction of Judah, uh, that fury that he unleashed when he was told that Tamar had become president, uh, 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 pregnant. <laughs> uh, over the years, I I've met some very religious people. I've been one of them. Uh, I think, you know, many of us are guilty of this religious people who are very judgmental. And oftentimes you see their judgment is laced with a lot of anger. And I ask myself, why? And I think there's a few different reasons, and we don't have time to go into them all. But sometimes, literally, it's just out of ignorance. I think one of the reasons why people react this way is ignorance. They judge people harshly, literally because they don't even realize that given similar circumstances, they might make similar mistakes, you know, there before the grace of God. 
is sometimes a very humble and healthy sentiment to, to remember. And so they can't imagine that they would do anything like that. Sometimes I think it's a bit of jealousy, honestly. I'm convinced of this. Um, within some conservative religious circles, <clears throat> there are certain people who are just angry that there are other people out there having that much fun. Um, it's like, I spend my whole life toiling for righteousness, and you're out there doing that. Mm, may God have mercy on your soul, but not that much mercy, right? <laughs> this is the way of the, the older brother in the parable <clears throat> of the prodigal son, and it's the way, it's an attitude that Jesus calls us out of. But I think one of the biggest causes if we're just going to get really honest and practical here, one of the biggest causes for this sort of unself-aware, finger-pointing, angry judgment, I'm convinced, like Judah, is projection. Projection. This is a very Freudian type of thing, I guess, but where we, this is where we end up judging most harshly the things that we're struggling with ourselves. Has anybody ever realized that? I certainly have. It's what I notice in my own struggles, what they usually reveal about me, what really gets my goat in other people. I get along with just about everybody, I think. I'm a pretty easygoing guy. But what really gets my goat are, are the things that I most despise lurking inside my own habits, my own tendencies, my own gut reactions. And in Judah's case, it's apparently this, a sexual thing. There, there's no record of Tamar actually like seducing him. She didn't have to. She just showed up wearing the veil and counted on his character to fill in the blanks, right? And Judah is inflamed with rage because of this. Why is that? Because sometimes we're harsh and we're so hateful toward other people because we are hating the struggle that lies within. And the only way to feel decent about ourselves when we're filled with that much self-loathing is just to loathe someone else a little bit more. It makes us feel a little better. Well, thank goodness Jesus has something to say about this. In Matthew 7, he calls us away from this through the plank eye process, the plank eye process of going. It's going and helping people with their sin, with their struggles, but doing so after we have first humbly dealt with our own sin, with our own mess, our own struggles, our own brokenness. And what he calls us here is very brilliant. It's so brilliant because it's not the, what Judah did. It's not the extreme of that, which is just to project our rage on other people. That's not loving, is it? It's also not what, you know, sort of popular today, which is to do nothing. Just, hey, you be you, you know, which is apathy masquerading as love. It's not really love. It's just apathy. Jesus says, no, no, no. There's a third way that's better. You love others enough to get involved in their life, to get involved in their struggle and help them and challenge them and even rebuke them even when that's called for. But you encourage them, but you do so after first going through this plank eye process seeing that wood beam in our own eye and before we go and try to get the eyelash out of somebody else's eye. And this is so transformative to our relationships. So 
So when you do get involved in the lives of other people, because you should be, you should be involved in other people's lives. That's, that's just love. That's part of being a community. But you're doing so, when you, go, when you are, you're doing so as a healed person, as a humbled person. Now, hopefully you don't need to be uh, publicly shamed like Judah was to be made aware of your blind spots. But we all need people that we allow close enough, that we allow to come in and speak into our life. We need folks who will step up and be our azers, our rescuers. We need our Tamars because we're all messed up in some way. Amen. We're all messed up in some way, right? That's just part of being human. We all have a stick in our eye that needs removing, right? And if you don't have one, we may have discovered yours, <laughs> right? <laughs> Let us gently help you with that. We all need God's help. We all need his forgiveness. We all need his cleansing. All of us. See, and then when I allow God to work on me and I allow my brothers and sisters to help me with that and to work on me, then I can go and personally help a friend one-on-one in a gentle way. See, that's being the church. That's being a minister. And every single one of you are ministers. That's being the church. Today, as we prepare communion together. And you can be getting those elements ready if you have uh, your communion elements. If you need some, there's some on the tables uh, over there if you didn't grab one. If you're watching by live stream, you're welcome to take part of communion with us from home. I want to let Jesus, though, uh, teach us something about ourselves. If we can learn a lesson from Tamar, we can definitely learn a lesson from Jesus. And it's from 1 John chapter 3. You know, every little kid in VBS or growing up in Sunday school, you learn John 3.16, right? For God to love the world. First John 3.16 probably ought to be just as important for us to to memorize. And here's why this is so important. First John 3.16 said, this is how we know what love is. This is how we know what love is. Here's why this is so important to us. We are free from the law. Am I right? Are we Old Testament or New Testament? New Testament. Okay, so we're free from the law. Well, that's great. But now, what is our ultimate standard? What guides us? We can't just like thumb through the Torah anymore, right? Because that made it easy. We just follow, make sure we dotted all of our I's and crossed our T's. If we're going to be new covenant what Jesus calls the kingdom of God. If we're going to be kingdom of God Christians, that's a very risky, irreligious, that can seem a very nebulous kind of a thing, right? Because we're under this law. We're under this new kingdom covenant. It's not enough just to be proper, nice, polite, religious folks. If we're going to be this way, then we better have our eyes fixed on the right thing. We better have a firm foundation under us, right? What is that firm foundation? And this gets right to the heart, I believe, uh, if I can rant for a second, just of the sickness that is uh, infected much of our culture today, even much of the church today. If your eyes get fixed on the wrong locus of authority, you're going to make destructive choices. You're going to make anti-Christ choices, even, you'll even do it in the name of Jesus 
because you'll think you've got God's support the whole time. If our eyes are not fixed on the correct locus of authority, because, because our, our, our authority, our, our focus is misplaced. So if we're going to call ourselves, we're not Jews, right? We're Christians. We're not under the Torah. We're under this new covenant. So if we're going to call ourselves Christians, followers of the God who is love, if we're going to hold our example up to the world, which Christians love to do, we like to hold our example up to the world that everybody should admire and emulate. Well, we better get question number one right, which is what does love look like? This is, this is question number one. And if we don't answer that correctly, we, what we're going to do is we'll flatter ourselves as being like very revolutionary, very countercultural in our society today. We're standing firm for the truth we're only acting out of self-interest, right? We're only going to break the rules if it makes our life more comfortable, if it benefits us, rather than breaking the rules for any sacrificial way, right? So how do we know what love looks like? How do we know? Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and so we ought to lay down our life for our brothers and sisters. Guys, this is Jesus for dummies right here, Amen. right? And I, and I as one of them, right? So I need this verse. What is love? What does love look like? Or to put it another way, what is the God of the universe really like? Because the Bible says God is love. So what is the God of the universe really like? And so what then should be our driving force, our, our north star, our prime directive, our prime motive behind everything we do? Jesus Christ laid down his life, his power. He laid down his position. He laid down his deity. He laid down his comfort. For who? Us dinglings, right? Amen. Jesus laid down all of that for me. And so I ought to lay down my life for one another. We ought to lay down our life for one another. So if your faith makes you hate other people, then you're doing it wrong, right? You're looking in the wrong half of the Bible, right? If you read the words of Christ, and if you read what he said and what he did, the example set by him, if you read the example set by the apostles, the example set by the early church, and you come away from that thinking, having nothing more than just some white-hot passion to, like, win elections and, and ridicule broken people, if that's what you come away with that, then maybe something beside the cross has gotten our focus off. And, and that's why, as we move into this time of celebrating the Lord's Supper, I am so grateful for this, because I need this. This is more than just some dead ritual. I am so grateful that God speaks to us, not just through the scriptures, he does, and not just through the stories in the Bible, not just through our thoughts, not just through each other, but he also speaks to us through this. He speaks to us so brilliantly through this very sensory act of communion, the shared experience that we do together, that we partake of in community, that he told us. Why did he tell us to do this often, as often? Why did he tell us that? Because he knows we need to be gently reminded over and over and over. So we do it often because we need to be reminded again. I'll probably need to be reminded again tomorrow 
after I thumbed through Twitter a little bit. Whew, I got to go get some more communion. I need to be reminded of what love looks like. Let's pray and then we'll take this together. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, I am reminded, oh Lord, of what real love looks like. Lord, you allowed your body to be broken. You let others shame you and abuse you. You laid down your life for us and you shed your blood so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be cleansed, so that we could be sent out to go and lay our lives down for other people. Lord, as we celebrate communion today, may this be a time not only for us to receive from you, but also, Lord, to be challenged by you, to go and lay down our lives and our egos and our rights and our comforts for others. Holy Spirit, speak to us. Speak to us through this beautiful act, which is not a dead ritual, but a living symbol of our true identity in you. Thank you, Lord God, for your love. Thank you for your love. We're grateful for it every single day of our lives. We're grateful for that you, you rescued us from our sin and you rescued us from ourselves. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. The body of Christ broken for you, amen. Thank you, Father. The blood of Christ, which was shed for you. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you for healing, Lord. Thank you for healing in our bodies and in our minds and in our emotions, all of the ways that we are broken and mixed up. We thank you that you have offered a salvation of our souls, but you go so, so much further, Lord God. You don't just want to leave us the way we are until the day we die. You want to transform us. Thank you for turning us more and more into the image of your son, Jesus. Thank you for helping us as a community, helping each other become more like Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for these stories that we read, these courageous people, these tenacious people who against all odds, we get a glimpse of you, we get a glimpse of your love and your strength and your bravery. Thank you, Father, for that. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 We'll stand to your feet, guys, as our prayer partners are coming forward now. Uh, if there's anything at all that you need prayer for, whether it's something in your body you need prayer for or, or something emotional or a financial need you have or a relational need you have, uh, I encourage you to come down now and let these guys pray with you. If you want to say yes to Jesus today, these guys would love you, love to, to take you into that next step. They would love to pray with you and, uh, and, and lead you into that. And I hope you guys have a wonderful, wonderful day. Let me... Um, let me give you a benediction. Amen. May the love of the Father and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you this week in this day that we live in. Amen. Grace and peace be with you. Bye-bye. Thank you, sir. Thank you.